You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome, everybody. This is Paul Flynn for Tuesday, the 16th of August, 2022. Thank you all for tuning in. This is, um, we're going to be doing another program for this Tuesday. This program is also going to be on YouTube, Lord willing, um, mainly because I'm going to be responding to a YouTube video, and maybe if people stumble upon that video, maybe they'll stumble upon this rebuttal of it. Uh, stumble upon it. I think it was one of my YouTube recommendations or oh, the old algorithm strikes again. And um, whenever I see popular enough channels, especially, you know, certain channels that usually do pop culture references and stuff like that, when they start covering things with regards to the Bible, usually that gets my attention because, okay... What will they get wrong? What will they get right? And, uh, and other things like that. So we'll be responding to, I think it's a grudge, a grunge, sorry, which is a YouTube channel. I'm not exactly uh, sure beyond that uh, what it is. Um, I'll actually just dig it up there while I am thinking about it. Um, commonly do videos and all sorts of things um there we go so that would be i'm gonna just put it up on the screen there oh unfortunately i'm in the way um <laughs> so um anyway you might be able to see it there in the corner of your screen if you're on youtube anyway the the, the i'm not playing any video on this uh, for the main reason is there's a number of um Second Commandment violations of it, Images of Christ, um, which as a Reformed believer in Jesus Christ, uh, somebody holds the Westminster Confession of Faith, and would see that, an image of Christ, as a violation of the Second Commandment, but I've done that in other programs, so we won't go into that here. Also, there was other, some, some other images that are somewhat problematic, so this will be only audio only that I'll be responding to this. I was going to, I was going to, add, I was going to, you know, chop back and forth, but there was so many problems with it. it just this is just a lot easier to do. If there's any specific things you would like me to do in terms of programs and other things like that, radio at gmail.com. That's radio M-E-G-I-D-D-O, radio at gmail.com. And there, just send the link. I can't promise I'll do everything. I will promise I will look at the links, and I have. Any of them that have been sent, um, sometimes I wrestle in my head whether to cover topics or not. It is not that I've ignored them or anything else like that. If I've said 99 times out of 100, if I've said I've looked at it, I've looked at it. And it's just sometimes either I find myself either repeating myself too much on the specific topic and it's been done before. Or I don't particularly want to give further attention to certain groups and sometimes followers of said groups you wonder anyway so yeah keep me in your prayers um so we're gonna anyway from this youtube channel grunge they are 
they just put out information videos about different things and they have t nearly 2 million followers on YouTube. So that is who we will be responding to today. Um, and the video is called, let me remind myself of the title. Here's what most people get wrong about the Bible. So I'm, I'm from this, they're going to correct what they see as common myths that common people agree with. And, um, yeah, let's play it and we'll respond to it. The Bible continues to be an influential and controversial text. Politicians and pundits alike use and abuse it to cherry pick verses to suit secular agendas. Um, yeah, and it's never gone away. It's the most popular book. Is it the most popular book that's ever been sold in history? Um, continues to be influential yes because the go the gospel goes forth souls continue to be saved satan cannot destroy the church and the word of god is that word from the shepherd himself um he says for secular agendas i'm i'm struggling to think of modern things I'm sure are people referring to right-wing politicians quoting the Bible out of context? I'm that used to happen a little bit, maybe back about twenty years ago. I, I probably haven't heard it. Very little do people ever want to quote the Bible, other than perhaps at funerals. You know, everybody wants to get religious around that time, but largely. We want in the West to eradicate any form of this from society. Let's continue playing. So it's no surprise there are common misconceptions of its material. Here are the most common misconceptions that pervade the general public about the Bible. Today, the Bible is seen as one book, but according to the BBC, the Bible is a multilingual library spanning 1,000 years and three languages. Okay, we'll give credit where credit's due. This is true. I don't know why they're quoting the BBC as a... Uh, I presume that's the British Broadcasting uh, Company. Um, I don't know why they see that as a good res resource for finding that out. Um, but whatever. Um, yeah. It's... Moses was the author of the five first books of the Bible. From Genesis to Deuteronomy. And then there's other authors as well. The Old Testament. And there's a number of authors in the New Testament... They're not been all written at the same time. Three different languages. Hebrew for most of the Old Testament, virtually all of it, except for parts of Ezra and Daniel. Um, you know, Aramaic at the time when those books, Ezra, were written. That was kind of like the international lingua franca of the day. And then you have Greek, which was the lingua franca, the, basically the English of that day. You know, that, that was the common language. Okay, so... Credit where credit's due. They start off well, and that is true. It is not technically one book. Some of the books of the Bible are very short. It's, you know, some of them are just letters, like Philemon and, and Jude, a book I'm currently going through right now. Uh, it's 25 verses. So, um, yeah, it's it, it's been written over many times with um, three different languages. Let's continue. The Old Testament dates to around 1000 BC and is mostly in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites. Okay, 1000 BC. 
okay, the, this kind of contradicts the previous one that it's a library over the which was the last books written of the Bible, you know, perhaps like Chronicles and, uh, you know, a little bit before that, Ezra and Nehemiah and things after the exile, bringing you up to about, what, a little bit before 400 BC. And, uh, yeah, there, were, there was material written a thousand years before, you know, a thousand years before Christ, but, uh, there's a lot of other material as well. So, the, you know, the Bible's been written over many hundreds of years. Uh, the book of Isaiah is written roughly around 700 BC, about 740 BC is the beginning, roughly the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, and probably ending around 680 BC off the top of my head. But uh, that's just the one book of the Bible. That's just Isaiah. So... It's just like, it's just, I don't know if, you see, there's one thing lifting information off of websites and other things. And when I put out my first movie, which I don't recommend people watch anymore, it's been scrubbed from the website, the power behind the New World Order. I made a lot of these mistakes. I didn't really know in depth a lot what I was talking about and um, you can just lift information it doesn't mean you're going to understand it and this is kind of it seems to be what what, what seems to be kind of going on here um, this is written over a span of time and it's not just 1000 BC there's depends what books you're talking about the last seven books the infamous deuterocanonical books however still exist in Greek the 4th century B not sure what he means infamous um Nothing really nefarious about them, except for they're not scripture and never have really been claimed to be scripture, except for the Council of Trent, which is the 16th century Counter-Reformation Council. You know, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church's response to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, that's the only council that ever said that the, De- De- that the, the Apocrypha, those... Um, First and second Maccabees is one of the most famous ones. Decent for history at times. Um, but not scripture. Never really deemed by scripture. Not by the, the Jews. Not by Christians. It's not that they weren't read. They were read by Christians around Augustine's time and all other things like that. But they were never seen as scripture. And there's there's benefits reading them. It's just they're not they don't have they're not Theonustus. They're not God inspired God um, as he did with Second Timothy three sixteen says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. They're not God breathed. They're not inspired by God. So you can't speak about those books. And this is the way it's been church history. It's only really been the the post-Trentine Roman Catholic Church that has really denied this, and at that time, they denied the gospel as well. Sixth session of the Council of Trent, they anathematized anybody who believed that you were saved by faith alone. I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit here, but that's what happened in the sixth session of the Council of Trent. 
So these books, not scripture. They may have been, yeah, it was put, these books were put in the 1611 edition, for example, of the King James. Again, not, they're not seen as scripture. I have a copy of the 1611, the actual 1611. I don't mean, what was it, the 1759 edition that we all have, <laughs> if you have a King, King James or something like that. Um, not saying that that means there's anything wrong with the, the authorized version or anything like that, but I'm just saying that there's been changes of spelling and a few other things like that. Nothing major, but that's that's what, kind of what's been changed. But in the original edition, the 1611, I think it was up until 1613, there was the Apocrypha. So And look, they had them there, but they never saw the scripture. But they don't have a copy in front of it. But it's been, you know, it's pretty clear in the markings that this is not scripture. Um, let's continue. Jewish elites adopted Greek to interact with the rest of the Hellenistic world. This led to the translation of Jewish text into Greek. The New Testament was also written in Greek. I don't want to labor this point too much, but um, that was the language of that part of the world from the time of Alexander the Great, virtually onwards. So, and that's around the time you get the Septuagint, about 300 BC, roughly. I am not sure, I've never read anybody making these claims that they just try to interact with the world. They wanted to be able to understand the scriptures and a lot of them were Greek speaking, etc. and so on. The world, world is in the world conquered by Alexander the Great and and then he's four generals that, that followed on after him, or the Macedonian Empire. Uh, they spoke Greek, and that became the language of the day. So they, as naturally would happen, the, the Hebrew, Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament would be translated into Greek. And then, you know, to, to interact with the world around them, that was just the international language. Um, kind of like Latin was the international language of medieval Europe. You want this book to go everywhere to a certain audience, well, you, you write it in Latin. Be, in that era, it was write it in Greek, but that's kind of all that there really is to that. In order to reach the wider non-Jewish audience that did not speak Hebrew. Alongside the well-known languages of Hebrew and Greek is Aramaic. Surviving today among the Middle East Christian minority, Aramaic was once the Middle East's primary language. Yeah, because I'm not really sure like, of any massive push within, which is one of the problems, that the, the Jewish community, Old Testament Jewish community, wanted the outside world to understand. Often, they kept turning away from God themselves, but I digress. From this web of languages and traditions, a single volume was eventually created. But perhaps surprisingly, it happened well after Christianity took root in the Mediterranean. The yeah, and I, I think he's trying to make it sound like a lot messier than it actually is. There's not much messy about it. It's, it's, it was written. It was recognized as scripture, and it was preserved, and... Uh, most of it was written in Hebrew, in the Old Testament. Some of it was written in Aramaic. And 
if you look at Aramaic text and Hebrew text, there's not a massive difference. There are differences, of course. Some of the vocab is different. Um, Ezra is kind of hard to work on a little bit harder than Hebrew is, mainly because I don't understand. You know, some of the wor- some of the words are very similar to each other. Some of the vocab is identical. Um, I've not done any work in 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 Daniel, so I couldn't speak on that as much. But a lot of Daniel is that, and it's not hugely different. It's really not same alphabet and stuff like that. So, um, no great, you know, that this is like, they all had to set, they all recognize what was scripture. Then, for the, for the New Testament, from pretty early on, Peter recognized Paul's letters as a scripture. And there's no great, there's a slight question mark over one or two of the books here and there at times. But that's really about it. And sure, you can go forward to, you know, the Reformation and perhaps, you know, Martin Luther and the Book of James, the Epistle of James or all of that. But by and large, these are kind of outliers. These are not mainstream. And really what the later church councils did was really recognize what the church had always recognized and just had to put it into canon, you could say, and just officially recognize it. But... Nothing, it wasn't like there was radically different back and forth. Okay, let's let's continue. Then practice of sola scriptura sees the Bible as the only correct source of God's teaching. And re- this is one I can understand where this misconception can kind of come from in at least classical theology in terms of the Reformation, in terms of um, 16th century, 17th century, not so much in the last couple of decades sadly but there's Ren recognized two books the book of nature and the book of scripture and um god is revealed in nature the heavens declare the glory of god as we're told in the beginning of psalm 19 also in romans 120 talks about how basically in creation that the godhead is his power and his deity has been revealed in creation so that they were they are without excuse that is, you know, the kind of language that Paul is using. Even the pagans are without excuse before God. Now, not... Well, just, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I'm going to play this again. It says here... Scriptura sees the Bible as the only correct source of God's teaching. The only correct source of God's teaching. I suppose, yeah, ultimate revel- revelation, source of teaching. There are... Yeah, it's a simplistic, we'll, we'll give them that. It's an oversimplistic view of that. But sola scriptura really means that scripture is the measure by which we look at everything else. Yeah, I mentioned the book of nature and the general revelation from creation, but that is not as clear as scripture. So scripture alone is the test by which we know truth and by which we can 
determine whether whether something is right or wrong, just to discern between truth and error. And um, that's what sola scriptura means. And some people say, well, we prefer you know, prima scriptura, which is first scripture. It is the highest authority. It is the authority which tests all other authorities. There's not. It is not the only authority. There's subordinate authorities under it. The and it is the 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 measurement by which we test all other things. The truths which are revealed in nature are the same truths that are revealed in Scripture. And if there's a contradiction, we've understood one of them in a wrong way. In reality, the Bible, as is understood today, did not exist when Jesus lived among his disciples. You know, if you're going to, I, I, okay, if you're going to have a video called, here's what most people get wrong about the Bible, you're, you're, you're doing something to correct people, oh, they get all this wrong and all this kind of stuff, and then you say something like this, no, the word Bible, okay, yeah, you could say, is it? Got Genesis to Revelation. Yeah, when Jesus went upon the earth, um, Matthew hadn't been written, the Gospels hadn't been written, Revelation hadn't been written, none of the New Testament had been written, none of the New Testament was written until after his, his, um, his death, burial, and resurrection. But what was he quoting from? On the road to Emmaus, he, he used Scripture. What was the fulfillment of the law he spoke about that the same video talks about later on? What did he have? He had what, what we call the Old Testament and what was called in the New Testament the law and the prophets. Actually, when he, when he talks about um, what are the two great law, um, what are the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, on these hang all the law and the prophets. Whenever you see the law and the prophets, basically you're talking about the Old Testament scriptures. What do you think the Jews followed? The, you know, even within this, there's contradictions even with what he's saying. What did Jesus have? He had the Hebrew and partially Aramaic for a few sections. Scriptures. He had the Hebrew Bible, if you want to put it like that. The word Bible just comes from the word was a biblios from the plant or whatever it's taken from. It's take you know for doesn't mean book originally. Replace that with the word scriptures. The nicest thing you can say is this, it's a really silly mistake, and it's a really silly mistake when you're apparently correcting the general Joe public over silly mistakes that apparently they're making, and oh, they just don't get it right. This is just. Um, What? So much, if you go through the New Testament and see how many times Isaiah is quoted, Jesus himself quotes from Psalm uh, 110, verse 1, and asks them, 
about the interpretation of it. The the canon of the the law and the prophets, uh, you know, the Hebrew Bible is really called Torah. There's a Torah Katavim. Oh yeah, and Nevaim. Basically, three words: the law, the prophets, and the writings. Three divisions for these collections of books. The law is basically the law of Moses, uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy, the prophets, books like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the writings, uh, stuff like um, Proverbs. I think Chronicles are in that collection as well. So, Jesus had that. Actually, by their own admission in the same video, anyway, it boggles the mind that he says in the same video. Soon after his crucifixion, the march toward a common canon was littered with problems. After Jesus's death, and just missed what he said there. Which canon is he talking about? A common canon was littered with problems. Disciples, nor soon after his crucifixion. The march toward a common canon was littered with problems. After Jesus' I thought my head I think that's a second century canon and um a lot of the stuff that are from the early you know lists of canons and things like this are basically fragments and we're not exactly sure where a lot of the stuff comes from, but I digress. Than resurrection, many gospels circulated in the Eastern Mediterranean and especially in Egypt. These Coptic language texts, called Gnostic Gospels, promoted the idea of hidden knowledge rather than obedience to a deity. Okay, yeah, they had nothing to do whatsoever. They didn't even, you know, these were not authored by the people who said they authored them. They, the earliest one, the Gospel of Thomas, which is probably the one that might come closest to being taken seriously, but should still not be taken seriously because, I don't know, what's the earliest date of it? Maybe 185 AD, something like that. Well, after the canon scripture closed, you know, the book of Revelation, for example, penned about 95 AD, a lot of these spurious texts, look, you have, of course... the real and then what will come after the counterfeit and people claiming to be you know whoever no one within the church took these seriously because there was nothing to indicate these were canonical there's nothing to indicate that these were authoritative there's nothing to indicate that there was any oversight of the apostles in any way shape or form in their writing scholar David Ewart noted that there also existed other books cited in the Bible that some Christian communities considered scripture. At the end of the 4th century AD... Yeah, you could get any... Like, seriously, you can get any groups that claim to be Christian. There were, there were a lot of the Gnostics claimed to be Christians, if we want to talk about Gnostics. I mean, John wrote against them. Kind of a, at least a kind of a, an earlier form or a pre... 
Gnostic kind of form of kind of um, somebody who would deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. They thought that the flesh was evil and the spirit was good. And they claimed to be Christians. They weren't. Read the beginning of 1 John chapter 4 to find out about that. So a lot of people like to do today, a lot of groups can claim to be Christians, but in fact, they are not. Not consider like in order to be part of the canon of scripture, you need um how can I put this? It needs to be consistent. If it's not consistent, obviously it's got nothing to do with what has gone before. Two church councils sought to end the confusion by standardizing what is today known as the Bible. In 393 AD. But this video is a confusion when it mashes all together the Gnostic gospel, the so-called Gnostic gospels and all this kind of stuff. Um, as if anybody took that kind of thing seriously. Um, yeah, there might have been question mark over one or two books. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, was it like things like uh, Hebrews, Revelation at times, maybe briefly, but not much. Not much. Synod of Hippo achieved what previous councils had not. It agreed upon an Old Testament standard of 46 books. The Synod of Carthage, four years later, set the New Testament canon at 27 books. Gnostic texts such as a lot, and when you're when you're listening when you're listening to book divisions and all, you always have to take into account that some books in the Old Testament sometimes were counted as one book, and sometimes, depending on what you do with them, what do you count them as two? For example, Ezra Nehemiah typically has always been dealt with as one book. Um, now in the English Bible, is dealt with as two. Uh, the, the Twelve, the Minor Prophets, I think they were dealt with as one book at one time, so that would have a major impact. Obviously, it's, you know, they're, they're grouped together as the Twelve, um, you know, including Haggai, Zephaniah, Zephaniah and other books. You get First and Second Kings, I believe, were really just one book and I think going back to when they were divided again a lot of it depends on how you divide it up so it might sound like there's a complete difference in numbers from this and that and the other again what are what's the contents of it not the number of the counted books but what's the contents and you'd have to provide that in order to make uh, the kind of claims that are being made here Gospel of Thomas were rejected due to what was considered heretical material, like Jesus killing childhood friends, questionable origins, or other inconsistencies. The final result was a 73-book volume, but it would not be the last time it received a major edit. Catholics and Protestants do not see eye-to-eye -eye on many issues. One would think, though, that they would agree on the number of scriptures. Not exactly. A case for frequent misunderstanding. See, this is a problem what I mean by the number of scriptures, how you divide up the books. Again, sometimes books were seen as one book or two, depending on how, you, but it's really the same thing, depending on how you look at it. It's the same scriptures. You know, whether you count, for example, First and Second Kings as one book or, you know, or all as one, it really just depends on how you divide it up. Or First and Second Samuel. Um... Ezra Nehemiah is a good example as well of one that was one book for for a lot, very long time now. Even even some modern 
Hebrew Bible seem to have it as one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. And look, the orders of Bibles have been different. If you if you have a Hebrew Bible, um, okay, yeah, it starts with Genesis, but it doesn't end with uh, Malachi, as our English Bibles would. It ends with uh, Second Chronicles, and that makes sense because these would have been the last few books written, um, books written at the end of at the after the Exodus, uh, the second Exodus, the exile and the on both sides, Catholics and Protestants actually use different Bibles. That's thanks to Martin Luther's innovations in the early 16th century. The National Catholic Register argues that Luther removed the deuterocanonical books from the Bible because he believed they weren't what God really wanted. They who, who, who really thought these were scripture? All, like, you have to be very careful with Luther claims online. You can claim all sorts of things because Luther wrote a lot, something like 66 volumes or whatever is the completed works, and you probably have to spend the rest of your life reading through <laughs> Luther to really um, to get through everything. And then a lot has been claimed about him. And when you actually finally, a lot, you know, sometimes there's videos I've been meaning to do for a while on various different topics, and then you spend all your time going through supposed to quotes from Calvin, Luther, and everything else, and that he believed this, that, and the other, look up the quote and go, well, he never said this, so always be careful and always check the sources um, before you believe what somebody says on the internet. Busnitz of the Master's Seminary rejects accusations that Luther modified the Bible or removed important texts. Luther conformed his Old Testament to the Jewish Hebrew Bible, which does not contain the seven deuterocanonical books. His opinion was that if Jesus, a Jew, affirmed only 39 Old Testament books, then the others were not scripture. Nevertheless, Protestant Bibles often include the deuterocanonical books and appendices as worthy of a believer's attention, while ecumenical Bibles place them at the end of the Old Testament. The Catholic Church, meanwhile, solidified these texts' status as scripture at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, cementing... Which was a, an, a basically a counter-Reformation council. Its main goal was to, you know, counteract the Protestant Reformation. Its differences. A popular misconception among both Christians and Messianic Jews is that only the New Testament is about Jesus because he does not appear in the Old. But significant groups within Christianity believe that the whole Bible is about Jesus. Significant groups. Is, you know, if you're a Christian, you believe the Old Testament is about Christ. Um, for example, before he makes his claim, if you, a very, very quick place to see one reference to Christ, um, Psalm 2, the, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers to counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, against his anointed, against his Christ Against the, that's what Christ means, the Messiah, the anointed one. Um, the, all of the scriptures point to Christ. He is the seed of the woman prophesied in Genesis 3.15. He is th that seed of the woman, which will come and crush the head of the serpent. 
He is the second Adam. He is the greater David. He's there in types. David is probably the clearest one. Solomon at times as well. The Psalms speak of him. If you look at the references to David, um, Psalm 22, the beginning of it, for example, again, Um, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and am not silent. So that was quoted by Christ from the cross, and it speaks of the agonies of the cross. The, the Psalms all speak about Christ. Uh, the, the, the wisdom, the timeless wisdom spoken about in Proverbs chapter 8. The Christ is, is there through it all the scriptures. He is the one who leaves behind uh, the comforts of heaven and goes and identifies with these people and suffers with them and suffers for them in their place. Again, all the way foreshadowed towards all the Old Testament. And if you're a Christian, you see the words of the Old Testament as the words of Christ. Christ is there. If you see, you, if you don't, if you don't believe, then you you're you're blind to it. There's a spiritual blindness. I'm talking about a veil over your eyes. In in Genesis one, God said, "Let there be light. Let there be light." He is the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John one fourteen. He is the Word. He is the Word of God. He created. So, if you don't see him in the Old Testament, I'd be very, very, very concerned. That would be the Marcionite heresy, which you'd think that the Old Testament has nothing to tell you about Christ. The very character of Christ is seen in the Ten Commandments, in Genesis chapter 20. That's what it looks like to love God. God is love. Jesus is love. And that's what his life was like, that perfect law-keeping of Exodus chapter 20, uh, when he gives the Ten Commandments written with the finger of God. It could go on and on. The Psalms speak of Christ. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If, if somebody is trusting Jesus Christ, they see Jesus Christ as... John chapter 10 talks about the good shepherd. And that good shepherd is our, our, our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah is my shepherd. Jehovah is the, 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 the Hebrew name. And that word Jehovah in, in Greek is kurios. Kurios is the word Lord. Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ.
Scholars have pored over the Old Testament looking for him there. The conclusion? Jesus makes multiple cameo appearances in the Old Testament. They just hide behind English translations. The Jewish... No, and I've dealt with why. He's very character, types and shadows. He is the sacrificial lamb. Behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He's pictured. The... The, the, the Levitical law sets forth in a picture form the gospel, the need of a substitute. In Genesis chapter 22, um, Isaac is to be sacrificed by Abraham. And then Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. There's the gospel. The lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ. So on and on. Scholars have poured out and he makes a few cameo appearances. Well, these guys, I'm not aware who, who are they. Quote them. They don't really know what they're talking about. Notes that Jesus' Hebrew name, Yeshua, is translated as salvation some 150 times in the Old Testament. So the phrase, the Lord is my salvation, can technically be read as the Lord is my Yeshua or Jesus. In a Christian worldview, this makes sense. Jesus is the savior of mankind, so his name should be a byword for salvation. Whether this counts as an appearance is debatable, but the name is definitely there. Jesus may also physically appear in the Old Testament, just not in human form. According to St. Justin the Martyr, the angel of the Lord in Genesis was likely an early appearance of Jesus. Walter Kaiser Jr. of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary even sees Jesus as the voice behind the burning bush that spoke to Moses. Now. Which would make sense because he is the word. He is the word of God. We have the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And these three are one. The one God. Unlike the appearance of Jesus' name, none of these are 100% agreed upon in any Christian denomination, but are interesting ideas nevertheless. I Based on what? The fifth commandment, or the sixth for Protestants, is mostly known as thou shalt not kill. In a nutshell, human life, made in God's image, is sacred. Therefore, killing must be forbidden. Right? command is restricted to the killing of innocents, matters such as self-defense. Okay, so, you know, it has a clip from, I think, Monty Python or something like that. Anyway, so, the, the Ten Commandments need to be understood as what they are, a summarization of the law. A summarization of the law. And it doesn't mean that all killing is wrong. Otherwise, nobody should be in the army. The sword has been given to the state, as we know from Romans uh, 13. So it's not that all killing is wrong. By the way, you also have reference to the death penalty in earlier in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. So you have to take things in, in context. This is talking about unlawful killing. 
the Lord taketh the Lord, uh, the Lord giveth the Lord taketh away. The Lord has the right to take away life. So um, this is on this is like nonsense. Uh, in in Genesis chapter nine verse six, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And this is given to all the nations. This is given to all the nations, which is why we should still have a death penalty today for murder. War and capital punishment are governed by a different set of rules. No, no, it's not that it's governed by a different set of rules. It's the state has the sword. The state has the sword. If, I mean, what if somebody is attacking somebody and the police officer has to, I don't know, shoot somebody in order to protect them or something like that? Would they say that's killing? That's the, no. This allows for self-defense. It allows for many things. It allows for the protection of others. It's talking about unlawful killing. And again, it's a summarization. You have to go to other parts of the Bible to see this. Rather than just say, hey, let's take this one, one verse, one summarization of the law, and then we go other way, somewhere else outside of the Bible to explain what is allowed and what is not allowed. There is death penalty. There are punishments. The, the state has the sword. The church does not. The church is the sword of the Lord. That is the, the spiritual word, the word of God to be preached. That said, the foreword notes that even Jews have debated the commandments, meaning... So, Bible translators sometimes left the commandment purposely ambiguous. In a historical context, Catholics and many Protestants interpret the command as, thou shalt not murder. From the Catholic perspective, the idea of a crusade, for instance, does not run counter to this commandment. This is because a crusade was conceived as a defense of Christendom against Islamic expansion. Readers of English Bibles will notice the- It's very hard to be have a simplistic argument about all the crusades. No doubt much of it was sinful, but there was some defensive action, justifiable, and some of it was very wicked. So, but I think it, like with all, all these things, there's often evil things done among it, but you just can't like take, you know, what was it, four major crusades over what span of time and just put it all into one basket. History doesn't work like that, unfortunately of the words Lord, Lord, and Lord in the Old Testament. This confuses even Christians as no... Okay. Um, why they would take on a topic like this, uh, considering, you know... By the Christian courier and does not seem to have a purpose, but it is actually an example of translations attempting to... No, it, it tells you in the introduction. If you read the introduction, it's not that difficult. Um... But it's not like Christians are like boggling the mind is boggled by what this means. Capital L O R D, when all the letters are capitalized, that's talking about the covenant name of God. Um, lowercase is just speaking about Adonai. That's it. Original Hebrew nuances that are lost in English. Written Lord, the word is one of God's titles. In Hebrew, it's Adonai. 
When written Lord or Lord, it refers to God's name. So why not just write out the name of God? Well, some do. Um, Jehovah? Um, one of the reasons, like, I don't think there's any, like, if you look at Albert Eidersheim, who was uh, a man who was converted from Judaism, I think to the church, within the Church of Scotland, Free Church of Scotland. Anyway, Albert Eidersheim, anyway, a lot of his books, uh, when he's writing with the Old Testament, he will say Jehovah a lot. That's the name of the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But it's since the Septuagint, Jehovah has been translated Kurios in the Old Testament. This is going back to 300 BC. And the New Testament use of, you know, when it's, for example, when the New Testament is quoting from Psalm 110, when it's saying, Jehovah said unto my Adonai, the Lord said unto my Lord. And this is one of the reasons I think why it does that, because, you know, there's two different Hebrew words going on here with the same English word, you could say, being used twice. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thy enemy, thine enemy my footstool. Uh, let's get, get it out there. Psalm 110, verse 1. Yeah, the Lord, Jehovah said unto my Adonai, sit at my right hand until, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So it's to distinguish between these and just to be help. Okay? Um, but there's nothing wrong with saying Lord at all. There's no, because this is... This is what the new. If you're going to have a problem with that, then you're saying that the the New Testament authors were wrong to saying, um, because this is how they translate it. When they're quoting the New Testament, I think it's in Matthew's in Matthew chapter twenty-two. Um, anyway, when it's quoting Psalm one hundred and ten, it says "Kurios." Kurios said unto my Kurios in English, Lord. You could say Jehovah, you can say Lord. If you say it's wrong to say Lord, well, take that up with the uh, with the inspired translation given by the Gospels when quoting the Old Testament. You're basically then going from Hebrew into Greek. And it says kurios. Kurios, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Kurios, Jesus Christ. So, I'm always baffled sometimes when people say, oh, you should use this. And I've even um, greatly loved John MacArthur, but when a big deal was made about this with the, um, what was it, the Legacy Standard Bible, I was like, you really, really want to go down this route that has to be that they made a big deal about you have to put in what did they put in again? They put in Yahweh. Okay. And that you have to do that. Now that makes it better or something like that. I'm not saying it's worse to do that, but I think it should be pronounced Jehovah, but, but that's 
another another move point. Um There's nothing wrong with Lord, unless you have a problem with what the is a Ma I think it's a Matthew twenty two. What Matthew what Jesus did with it when he quoted from it, whether he was quoting from the Septuagint or whatever, obviously it's fine. So we've got to be careful that the claims we're making sometimes about translation because remember the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and what it does, whether it gets it from Septuagint or wherever it gets it from, it is quoting as divine authority and saying this, which has been translated from Hebrew into Greek, however it got there, is okay. <laughs> There's no problem with this, obviously, because the New Testament is okay with it. So, you want to really put in the name of Jehovah? Great. You want to put in more the Lord? Great. They're both fine. It's easier than creating this confusing trifecta of uses with one word. The reason is found in Jewish tradition. Jews did not, and still don't, out of reverence, pronounce God's name, Yahweh, under any circumstances. However, the scriptures and prayers containing the name still have to... In order to make this point, I mean, you'd have to prove that this is a Jewish tradition that goes right back to prior to the Septuagint, I guess. Is it a... I've not done massive, massive research in this. This is more of a question for people who would do the research in it and start making this dogmatic claim. Is this something that maybe something that originated from the medieval Jews, the Mesorites, or something like that? Read or recited aloud. Therefore, Jewish scribes noted that Yahweh should be read aloud as Adonai. This workaround is preserved in Bible translations today. Christian Bible translators imitated the convention, translating Yahweh as Lord rather than writing out God's name, whose exact pronunciation... New Testament does it, and also the Septuagint does it, so... Both can be done. Unknown. This neat but misunderstood distinction ties Christianity with its Jewish roots and explains one of the Bible's more mystifying conventions. The word Philistine originally referred to Israel's chief enemies in the Promised Land. Their name, according to Merriam-Webster, is a byword for uncouth, uncultured people. However, this view of the Philistines has its origins in 17th century Germany and is not biblical. The Philistines were actually quite civilized, as recent archaeological evidence attests. Not going to go with biblical evidence or anything else like that. They were they were pagans. They were the enemies of God's people. They were the ones that David turned to, sadly, for a moment, um, in, in for seeking refuge. And you know when Saul was chasing him. Um, 2016, a team of archaeologists working near the city of Ashkelon discovered a large Philistine cemetery dating to around 1000 BC. The site was hidden to prevent Haredi Jewish protests, but the team eventually released its findings, which were nothing short of spectacular. Among the finds were large storage jars, imported pottery, perfume, fragrant oils, and jewelry. The Smithsonian notes that the grave goods were strategically arranged for the benefit of the dead. The perfume was placed on the dead person's face near the nostrils so the tomb owner could smell the fragrance in the afterlife. The careful and reverent treatment of the dead, who were equipped with the most sumptuous and exotic goods of the era, debunks the idea of the Philistines as savages. Instead, how? 
So apparently, because they had a lot of smoke and just listen to this again, does this make any sense? notes that the grave goods were strategically arranged for the benefit of the dead. The perfume was placed on the dead person's face near the nostril. Well, they were pagans. They were, they were unbelievers. And because of a few grave goods, and this, forget about anything you might have known before that. I, how? This is, you know, like a, this is pretty common of pagan beliefs. So the tomb owner could smell the fragrance in the afterlife. The careful and reverent treatment of the dead, who were equipped with the most sumptuous and exotic goods of the era, debunks the idea of the Philistines as savages. Instead, it points to a civilized culture that had been inherited from the Great Bronze Age civilizations of How? Like, how do you take that from there's a bunch of sumptuous goods with them and how they would even know that is another issue but um and just like how do you how do you work out just because they were buried with certain things that they were you know there's, there's a lot of pagan societies that are a lot nicer to people when they're dead than they are when they're alive it doesn't really tell you much is what i'm saying i'm not saying one way or the other that you can tell from this evidence you'd have to go from biblical evidence if you're going to find out what the philistines were really like crete the word philistine in arabic means palestinian as a result political debates have a yeah okay um there seems to be like palestina is the the latin term isn't it uh and that was something they used by the romans Right around, wasn't that sometime after the time Titus and the armies uh, destroyed Jerusalem? It was in 70 AD. And they kind of retitled a lot of the place, and the place became known as uh, Palestine or Palestine really after that. Places get retitled. Um, you know, even if you look at the, go the Gospel of John, you know, uh, Sea of Galilee is no longer Sea of Galilee, it's the Sea of Tiberias by the end of the, you know, when by the time around John is writing his gospel, which is probably about the 80s AD, something like that. And, um, yeah, it's probably just some kind of mockery trying to, you know, the Romans trying to eradicate any memory of the Jews because they were seen as a pain and a pest to them and they wanted to get them out of there uh, because they were constantly revolting and uh was insurrection after insurrection and romans just kind of basically said enough's enough and then i suppose the final insult is saying well you're not judea anymore or, or um this was galilee as well and a couple other places you are now palestina and then um you're gone from the land that kind of thing and i'm gonna call you after <laughs> your enemies and uh now again look i'm open to be corrected on that on sources on that but that seems to be where the title comes from when it comes to modern political debates i really just think here are generally speaking two sides in a very very general sense two sides that need to get saved um 
but we've got to be careful that we don't fall into the anti-Semitic traps of the past either, and I don't think we've learned as much from 1945 and the Holocaust as we think we have. We haven't. We seem to be making the same mistakes again, but that's... Um, it'll bite away. ...to connect the modern Palestinians with the Philistines. However, these debates lack historical context. They also obscure the Philistines' fascinating origins, which are found in the Bible. According to the Bible, the Philistines originated in Kaftor, which was probably Crete. They were a sea people from the Aegean. Genetic testing on the bodies in the Ashkelon Cemetery supports this notion. The results show that the Philistines probably originated in southern Europe. Okay, I'm not going to be pausing this all the time. Um... Not every single claim in this video I'm going to say is wrong or there's going to be a few times, a few times here and I just plain don't know. And uh, I'm just going to play it. It doesn't mean what he's saying is true. Uh, I'll, I'll let you know if I agree with things. Um, and then every now and again, if there's something significant, I will pause it and comment. In southern Europe, such as Greece, Spain and Sardinia, they then migrated somewhere between the end of the Bronze Age to the early Iron Age. The genetic studies suggest that the Philistines arrived after a sea migration. They were genetically very similar to their Levantine neighbors. However, they crucially also carried DNA from southern Europe and the Aegean. Most likely, these migrants had settled in the region and intermarried with local women. So potentially, the Philistines were actually heirs of the first Greek civilization, not the uncouth barbarians the Bible makes them out to be. Millions. Um. I don't really know what that's got to do with anything. What later ancestors marrying into other groups really has it. Unless you want to be completely racist and saying, well, they're just going to continue on doing what they were doing. Um, well, Greek civilization wasn't always what it was. And before then were pretty uncouth. What, for example, what I'm doing today and a couple of other things doesn't, help me determine what my great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers were doing. Um, there's a lot of leaps of logic going on here, um, apparently, to, in a very, very weird way, to try and attempt to debunk the Bible without any thing that could be even approaching evidence. American children are familiar with the classic underdog story of the shepherd boy David and the giant Goliath. David killed Goliath with a slingshot and became king of Israel. It seems too good to be true, especially since scientists and historians have generally rejected David's existence. But evidence from the Middle East suggests that... Okay, I'm not going to be... Yeah, this isn't really my area when it comes to this part of archaeology and stuff like this. Um... Here we go. I'm gonna I'm gonna deal with um I'm gonna skip a little bit ahead, talking about the differences between the old and the New Testament. Person of great valor, he more resembles Mafia Don. A popular misconception regarding the two parts of the Bible is that the New Testament does away with the old. This view primarily stems from the stark difference between G No, just heretics say that. I mean the new does away with the old. That's Marcionism. That's chopping up your Bible, chopping out the Old Testament. No. The New Testament doesn't mean everything. No. No, no, no. No. The popular view, yeah, maybe popular with non-Christians who say that they're Christians, but... 
A popular misconception regarding the two parts of the Bible is that the New Testament does away with the Old. This view primarily stems from the stark difference between Jesus' message of salvation and forgiveness on one hand and the Old Testament's Jewish law on the other. Now, Jewish law was hard. No, it's the same message all the way through. It's the same message of mercy and grace. Even in the middle of the giving of the law, in Exodus chapter 20, in verse 6, it says, And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, showing mercy. Mercy is by grace. Mercy is something that people don't deserve. It's based upon someone else in their place keeping these commandments. Now, it's, it's not based on, on you know, those who love me and keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. J Jesus said that in John 14, 6. It is the same gospel from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end of Scripture. Same gospel. And if anybody preaches any other gospel, let it be accursed. Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. So it's not, no, there's not a different... There's maybe more, there's more of an emphasis on certain things in one administration of the covenant, the old covenant, more focusing in on the law and other things, but the same substance, the substance is Christ in both Old and New Testament, the same Savior is being pointed towards that lamb foreshadowed. And then John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Same gospel. Exactly the same gospel. If there's two gospels, if it's two messages, well, it's incoherent and it shouldn't be followed at all. The notorious Levitical laws prescribe the death penalty for a range of moral offenses. Some now, the Levitical laws have to be determined whether they're moral, you know, are they part of that eternal law that never changes, which is written with the finger of God, that is the Ten Commandments, or is it judicial, which is given to Israel as a nation only? You know, the, the death penalty was given to all the nations in Genesis 9-6. That was, that was before, this is well before Moses. And then to Moses and the people of God, hundreds of years later, they are given these specific laws, these death penalties and things like that, which are not part of, these are positive additions onto uh, the moral law. See, the Christians for centuries have divided the law into the moral law, summarizing the Ten Commandments, the judicial law given to um, given to Israel as a nation, and these laws you know, they may give general principles, and we do believe that they give general principles things we can look at, all that kind of thing. But not in every single society are they to be identical or anything else like that. By burning or stoning the transgressors. The law also mandated reciprocal justice like eye for an eye for interpersonal crimes. So what does the Bible itself say about this controversy? Well, look, today, what does the Book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And it's under a different administration of the law.
explained in detail in books like Hebrews and the New Testament. Under a better covenant. What doesn't change is the moral law and the Ten Commandments. That does not change. But at different times, these commands were not there around the time of Cain and Abel, were they? They weren't around there at the time of Abraham, time of Lot. But what was there all the time until Moses was the moral law, the Ten Commandments summarized. That, that has never changed. That was prior to the fall. That is the law of God written in our hearts. We are created in the image of God. Let's continue. Stated in no uncertain terms in Matthew 5.18 that not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until... Okay, Matthew 5.18. I'm going to get... I don't know what translation he's quoting from exactly. So Matthew 5.18... For verily I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass away from the law till all be fulfilled. He didn't quote a really more important verse, which is the verse before it. Think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. And what does that mean? The law, I haven't come to destroy the Old Testament, the the, the Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures. I've not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I am the fulfillment of this. Oh, he's, yeah, I am the fulfillment of this, Jesus tells them in Matthew 5, 17. So it doesn't do away with it. He is the one who has kept them. Everything is accomplished. Therefore, the New Testament clearly gives Jesus' approval to the content of the Old Testament. So why don't the old penalties apply? The Catholic Church explains that Jesus... Again, which parts of the Old Testament? Uh, this is a kind of a blanket of, oh, well, what about prior to the fall? Well, there's a difference between prior to the fall and what was given pre-Moses and post-Moses, what was given at Mount Sinai. And then we're told these things are done away. For example, the, the sacrificial system of animals, that was done away. Why? Because it pointed towards Jesus' blood. And to keep sh- sacrificing animals would deny that he had come, that the, the lamb that was slain that, that takes away the sin of the world had made that perfect, final and complete sacrifice. So that sacrificial system is done away. Why don't we do circumcision anymore? Because the shedding of blood would be you know, n- not appropriate because there's no more shedding of blood because Christ has shed his blood the, that has been pictured now replaced by New Testament baptism on and on so we're under a new administration but the substance of the covenant is the same faith alone in Jesus Christ we have we still have sacraments such as the Lord's table which replaced the Passover I mean, these are continuation on from the same truths. But you have to remember that the Old Testament doesn't start with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are positive additions to the law given for a period of time, and then these are taken away. And also, there's other parts where... In, in the Psalms, it gives, it's very, very clear that God does not take pleasure in, 
and the sacrifice, sacrificing of bulls and goats and, and, the, and the blood. This is not where it's the same in Isaiah, especially when they're not keeping it from the heart. These are, how to put this, a broken and a contrite heart is what the Lord seeks. That's what's a pleasing sacrifice before him. That's what's a sweet aroma before him. Not just the pure external ceremonies of the law. Same message in the Old and the New Testament. The outward administration is different, but the substance is the same. He took upon himself all of the sins and suffered the penalty, which was death. So the penalties for violating the law were no longer needed because Jesus had already suffered them. The Immaculate Conception is largely misunderstood. Popular wisdom holds that since Jesus' mother was the Virgin Mary, his conception was immaculate and not the product of sexual relations. This is a near-universal Christian belief, but it is not the Immaculate Conception. It is the Annunciation. The Immaculate Conception is an exclusively Catholic dogma concerning the Virgin Mary's conception. The phrase Immaculate Conception suggests... And this is dealing with, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because... Um... This is an area where yeah, it kind of gets it right sometimes. Um, the Mary within the Roman Catholic Church is exalted to an unbiblical state and treated as a another savior, a co-mediatrix, um, a mediatrix, she's called in the Catholic documents, but this cannot be backed up by scripture at all. That God shielded the Virgin Mary at her conception from original sin. Catholics believe that humans are born with sin inherited from Adam's disobedience to God in the Garden of Eden. Baptism washes it off, but Mary suffered from none of this. Yeah, the, the only difference is, like, yeah, we believe that, you know, in Adam all die, but Christ all should be made alive, but baptism doesn't just wash it away and we start from scratch and then we can keep our own, you know, it's like a grace plus works mixture after that. The Catholic reasoning is that Mary needed to be sinless in order to be Jesus' mother. Thus, not only did she never commit any sins in life, she could not have been born with any sin either. That would have negated her purity. Unlike the Annunciation, which does appear in the Bible, the Immaculate Conception does not. Instead, the dogma developed in Western Europe during the Middle Ages before being defined. Yeah, yeah, like... It's a basically a, something that developed. And even... The, the, the Catholic doctrine of Mary cannot be found in Scripture. It cannot. And under Pope Pius IX in 1854, Protestants view the dogma as unbiblical papal overreach, while the Eastern Orthodox Church rejects the dogma as unnecessary. The well-known Christmas carol, We Three Kings, is a holiday favorite. Three kings from the East... Okay, it spends the next couple of minutes talking about a couple of things about um, the three kings and a couple of other things from... Was it Matthew 2? Um, yeah, this is the problem. Christmas carols and uh, man-made hymns and a couple of other things. Sometimes what it's teaching is not exactly accurate all the time. Hopefully, that has been some bit of help to you we're gonna wrap it up there because um it's gone program's gone on a lot longer than i would have wanted to if you've got any messages megiddo radio that's m-e-g-i-d-d-o radio at gmail.com um most of the programs will not be here on youtube if you're watching on youtube 
Most of the programs will be found here at... Wait, let's get over there. At the bottom of the screen there, it says... Get a radio at gmail.com. It's M-E-G radio at gmail... No, not gmail.com. We get a radio at dot com. Talk to you again soon.